0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: 5 past 12. Good to have you along on the Country Hour this afternoon. Shortly, the latest on the live export vessel at the centre of the latest COVID-19 outbreak... Will the shipment of 56,000 sheep get an exemption to sail to the Middle East after the uh, moratorium on the trade starts on Monday, just days away from that? Also, another attempt to be made to reopen an iron ore mine south of Kananara. The details on that mine and some other resources news for you after half past 12 today. And... After four years of waiting and operating on temporary permits, barley growers now have ongoing approval from the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority to use glyphosate late in season on feed barley. Glyphosate is used this way to help farmers control weeds and to desiccate crops. In other words, dry them out ready for harvest. But there has been concern about the practice because it can have trade implications. Grain Producers Australia Chair Andrew Wiedemann says the APVMA approval will give farmers more weed and soil management tools and he doesn't think it will affect market access.
3: It's been a work in progress uh, over the last probably four years uh, that we've been working on this. So obviously for a lot of listeners would be aware that Grain Producers Australia took a position in 2016 to put an emergency permit in place so that we had a label that actually recognised the activities of farmers uh, and in the use of late season applications of glyphosate in barley uh, so that we had an MRL essentially in place for the market to be able to trade the barley.
4: This approval that we've seen uh, that came through late yesterday, does this give ongoing certainty or does it have an expiration date as well?
3: No, this is now registered uh, for use as per the label uh, that we've posted last night and is on the Bayer website and our website, uh, the, the links. So that now gives growers a surety of being able to use glyphosate uh, late in season on feed barley only. But also, of course, this is still a practice that farmers are using, uh, but they also need to make sure that they're in contact with their marketer in terms of what they're requiring as well. But essentially brings it in line uh, with the rest of the world in terms of the glyphosate label. Uh, we've got a 20-part-per-million uh, increase from the 10 parts per 1000000 uh, but it's still under the 30-part-per-million, which most of the global labels are written to in, in our competing countries of uh, barley origins.
4: Originally, that was at 10 parts per 1000000 It's now uh, been increased to 20, as you mentioned. Why did that increase occur? Is that anything to do with... Uh, changes in markets and changes in MRLs.
3: Uh, no, not specifically. It's more to do with ensuring that the label application that the rates that are on the label uh, are within uh, the uh, those MRL limits, essentially for sale. So, within Australia, we've had a ten part per million MRL, and we've been lagging the rest of the world at thirty. Uh, so, this is a natural increase on the label now to recognise the global situation, but also to assure. Uh, the end users and so forth that it's going to be within an MRL uh, that's been set by the VMA and after going through the testing and the uh, reporting processes that they do in terms of setting labels against uh, all of the studies that they use in determining uh, any usage or change of pattern of use for label recommendations for chemicals here in Australia.
4: The APVMA has given this approval this week and just recently we've seen uh, the Chinese barley market disappear basically for Australian farmers. It was a major customer, but because of tariffs that are going to be placed onto our barley going into China, it's no longer a viable destination. Is this related or is the timing just coincidence?
3: China has never had an issue with um, Australian barley with glyphosate, uh, full stop and uh, we, we know that because we've spoken to the end users in China ourselves so it's it's um, not been an issue for them and it's not related in any way shape or form with anything to do with registrations around this. The marketplace determines what it wants in terms of its consumers we've seen other countries look at taking glyphosate out of the food basket essentially within their country but then uh, reinstating it again um, as they realise just how intrinsic it is in terms of the usage for the food uh, that they're trying to import but also grow themselves in, in those countries so look at the end of the day it's, uh, it's a global discussion essentially and, and bringing Australia now more into line with that with uh, closer to a global label, I think is really important but it does give surety now to any exporter around uh, making sure that they're uh, within the uh, MRL limits and, and that there's a label that supports uh, our usage because before that uh, we didn't have one. At the end of the day th- this is a practice that is now supported with a label uh, and it will give a surety then to uh, the complete supply chain around being able to have farmers delivering it. It's, it's up to the marketer if they wanted to try and differentiate somehow for specific markets that they may choose to go into. But uh, essentially, it's uh, business as usual now for the Australian grains industry. And we just move on and, and uh, work towards uh, what's needed to try and reinstate new markets in other parts of the globe.
4: And Andrew Wiedemann, you're the chair of Grain Producers Australia, but you're also a farmer as well. What will this mean for people on the ground growing barley? What does it give them? <laughs>
3: It gives them an assurity that in those particular areas where they've got ergot concerns, they've got uh, late ryegrass that they're trying to control and manage uh, to try and control that ergot issue, uh, that that will give them assurity. Um, Late germinations of wild radish and these sort of things, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's a whole range of reasons why farmers are using it. uh, And it also gives them an option instead of growing pulses in some of the more fragile soils as well where they can use this as a clean-up method and retain that stubble. And it's important for the environment uh, to retain as much stubble residues as we possibly can in our farming systems to try and retain moisture but also to uh, ensure that we're making the environment uh, with the, the stubble uh, less uh, subject to erosion and all of those other associated things that we're seeing. And of course, only uh, this last weekend in Western Australia, seeing some of the pictures of erosion in paddocks where uh, the the season of last year has not left enough stubble residue to try and control and manage that. Um, So again, Joe, Roundup or glyphosate is very important. Um, We're very grateful that Bayer um, was able to come through and, and add it to their label, their global label, uh, and uh, the product that we've now got registered is in place for
2: this season and, and ongoing. Grain Producers Australia Chair Andrew Wiedemann with Joe Prendergast. This is the Country Hour, 12 past 12, and not a group of seniors hot off the mark on the text today. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four, 922 604 saying, Life, this is a stupid idea, just adding to resistancy issues we already have around. And what about when they ban round up be part of the conversation this afternoon on text 0448 922 604 a western australian based company wants to see if lupins can be processed and marketed for the rapidly growing plant protein industry this is protein for human consumption and globally the industry is expected to be worth 40 billion us dollars by 2025. And that presents a real opportunity for WA, the home of global lupin production, because lupins are one of the highest protein legume crops. But so far, lupin protein doesn't feature all that much in meat alternative foods. But WA based farming and food company Wide Open Agriculture wants to change that. Managing Director Ben Cole wants to create lupin protein meat alternatives and high-protein oat milk, and they've just signed a deal with Curtin University to progress trials of protein extraction technology.
5: The agreement effectively gives us um, the option to take a a globally exclusive licence on a technology that really allows um, Australian lupin to become a rival to some of the leading plant-based proteins globally.
4: And how are you going to do that? Because we know lupins contain protein. We know that they can be used uh, as a food source and we're seeing that on small scales in, in WA at the moment. But what are you going to be doing that's different?
5: Well... Wide Open Agriculture for the last year has been exploring um, ideas around Lupin. We, we see this as a really exciting part of our overall product portfolio alongside oats and, and regenerative meats, beef and lamb. In our early stage of product development and market testing, what came back was that it, it is a wonderful product around its nutrition, but it was very hard to get the, the right, what they call techno function or the right structure of the lupin um, in a ground form or a powder form to make something that was really, um, I guess, had the right mouthfeel and the right taste. So we did identify really early on, we needed some technology that could uh, unlock that. And um, Curtin University um, has a good reputation, very strong reputation in, in, in lupins and legume innovation and research. And this technology was um, demonstrated to us and and we got really excited. And and after a lot of negotiations and discussions, we came to a point where we said we'd we'd really want to advance this technology all the way from benchtop to to a commercial scale.
4: So without getting too technical, how does this technology work, Ben? I'm imagining you're actually somehow extracting that protein from the actual lupin. Is that right?
5: That's spot on. I mean, it's really... It's, I mean, lupin is one of, if not the highest lupin uh, or legume um, with very high protein levels. It rivals the sort of market leader of soy, but no one's really worked out how to unlock it. But not only unlock it, you can get the protein out, but how do you get the protein in a form that effectively allows it to gel and thicken? It's such a simple property, but When you're cooking and a chef, you know, gelling and thickening allows you to bind things together. And that's what this technology really allows you to do it allows you to sort of insert the lupin protein into a deeper matrix of carbohydrates and sugars so that you can make a nice, tasty, um, soft mouthfeel product.
4: Are you at that point yet where that technology is proven and this process exists or are you still looking to sort of finalise that?
5: No, the process is proven. Um, it's, it's proven and patented technology, which obviously makes sure that it's a, it's a commercial innovation that, that does have new new innovations and novel innovations associated with it. And they've done it in the lab. Uh, they've done it in a lab that is not not food grade. So now we're taking it up to the you know the next point where wide open agriculture is really a key partner is getting it into a food grade lab to to make enough of it that we can then again wide open agriculture will lead this process the the product development and and market testing.
4: And so what's the end goal here? What sort of products do you want to see on the shelf that are based on lupin protein?
5: A number uh, where we're going to start with is we we are developing and just a few months away from releasing a, an oat milk. So we'd love to see if um, oat protein could maybe bolster an oat milk that's got a you know a real wheat belt blend of um, West Australian oats and lupin. Uh, the, the meat alternative, plant-based meat market, um, is. Exploding is the only way of describing it. Companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods in the US are showing that. So we'd like to see if we can put it into a, a meat analog. Also around potentially um, egg alternatives and also gluten free as well. Um, you know, there's already good, good products out there using lupin, but um, we'd really like to see it potentially applied in a gluten free bread and pasta as well.
2: Ben Cole, he's from Wide Open Agriculture and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. Now, the company does have a couple of hurdles to jump over. The product and market testing, which he mentioned, and lupin protein extraction has to meet a cost-effectiveness study as well. So a little bit of work to do uh, between now and then. 18 past 12.
1: The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: It is only days away from the start of the annual moratorium on sheep exports to the Middle East, but the industry remains hopeful the vessel at the centre of the latest COVID-19 outbreak can be cleaned and given the all clear to set sail to Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. As you know, six workers on the MVLQ8 tested positive for coronavirus after the vessel docked at Fremantle Port on Friday afternoon. About 56,000 sheep are currently being held in a feedlot on the outskirts of Perth. Mark Harvey Sutton is head of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council.
6: The moratorium on sheep live exports is due to come into effect on the 1st of June. So it would be in our interest for a loaded vessel to, to leave prior to that date. But just given the the complexity of the issue and the range of authorities that are involved, it's we just need to work through those processes and assess what our best options are.
1: And we did hear from uh, the Premier this afternoon, he's not happy with the Commonwealth. He says the state government weren't told uh, that there were crew members with fevers on board, but the Department of Agriculture knew about it and let it dock. David Littleproud says that's not true. What's your understanding of the situation? Has someone dropped the ball
7: here?
6: Well, I can't speculate on communications between uh, the levels of government, but I certainly understand that the vessel has done and met all of its requirements in terms of reporting and notification and meeting its protocols. And indeed, uh, that's why these cases were picked up. So uh, certainly from an industry perspective, we're not interested in Getting caught between a, uh, he said, who said what uh, between the federal and state governments. We just want to make sure that the the crew are looked after, um, and that we can make sure that we have uh, a consignment of sheep going as quickly as possible.
1: What's the plan for those fifty six thousand sheep now? I guess they can't stay in Baldivis indefinitely. What are the options?
6: Well, the options are uh, that they do reintegrate into the domestic market, or they go on a on a, on a vessel. But I mean, I must stress, I mean, the Bell Divers feedlot, I've been there, it's an excellent facility. Those sheep are looked after. There are certainly no welfare uh, concerns with their they having an extended stay there. Something will have to be resolved in terms of what happens to them. This is obviously a situation that we have been potentially planning for. It's a worst case scenario, but it shouldn't be a reflection and should be viewed as an isolated incident it's very well documented that air freight is severely constrained at the moment and I've seen figures saying that globally air freight's operating at 10% capacity of what it once did. And what we're seeing there is an increased reliance on, on sea freight. And we're seeing an increased demand globally uh, for livestock uh, and that's part of the responsibility we bear as an industry and we're, we're world leaders at it.
2: Australian Livestock Exporters Council Chief Executive Mark Harvey Sutton with Kit Mocken. 21 past 12. Well, as Mark was just telling you, a a three-and-a-half-month moratorium on exporting live sheep to the Middle East is due to come into effect on Monday. But the Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud, says an exemption may be granted before the new laws come into effect.
8: We obviously have concerns around animal welfare. Uh, and we're working with uh, the independent regulator and the exporter to ensure that those animals are looked after, and they are, they're all in good health I'm advised, and we'll work with the exporter about trying to get that boat going. Uh, It will miss the deadline of 1 June for the moratorium on the Northern Summer Exports but there is an exemption I'm advised in the legislation for the independent regulator uh, to give and to grant approval for that ship to sail after 1 June, and and particularly in light of these circumstances, but that that will be at the discretion of the independent regulator, not
9: me. Okay, because there are 56,000 sheep. They've all gone through biosecurity and quarantine. And this uh, ruling was to ensure that they weren't sitting on ships going into hot summer uh, periods. So you're saying that there, there could be an exemption because this ship is clearly going to be held up now while this is sorted out.
8: Yeah, well, obviously the the, uh, the boat needs a deep clean, and then we have to work through the welfare of the crew uh, and understand that, and work with the company, and work whether other crew could take over if that was the case. So. That'll evolve over the coming, coming hours and days. Oh, we wouldn't like to see it um, go too deep into June, but obviously that's a decision for the independent regulator, not for me, to, uh, to determine whether it's safe for those sheep to travel. But there is a biosecurity risk now. Uh, those sheep have passed through biosecurity and it would be difficult for them to enter back into paddocks around uh, Western Australia. So um, there are limited options there and that's why we'll be pragmatic. Uh, And I'm sure the independent regulator will work through that predicated on science.
2: Agriculture Minister David Little, proud with Lisa Miller. And a short time ago, the minister addressed a media conference in Toowoomba where he was asked about the potential value of the live sheep shipment, which has been delayed.
7: My rough estimates from memory is that, that each one of, of those uh, of those shipments are around 12 million dollars but that's some times ago. So please don't hold me to that. that's, uh, that's uh, about two years ago. I, I remember in the live, in the middle of the live trade uh, situation uh, understand remembering some of those numbers, but I'm happy to provide them to you.
2: And you say the independent regulator could grant an exemption so the sheep could sail after June 1st. How far into June would you accept it's appropriate to allow an exception?
7: Well, that's not for me to determine. I'm a politician. I don't have uh, the scientific backing to be able to do that. I'll leave that to the independent regulator who has the scientific basis in which to make that determination and that's where it should be left.
2: Have you spoken with the regulator regarding the option to postpone
7: sailing? No, I haven't. I've been dealing uh, with uh, the allegations and assertions around the Department of Agriculture to ensure that we've adhered to all the protocols, but I'll be dealing with the Department I won't be making any recommendation or or, or making any of my personal views known to the independent regulator that being appropriate and it's up to them to make their determination. That's what the Australian public would expect. They would expect that the the live sheep that go into the Middle East uh, uh, do that in a safe way and that's what the independent regulator will be charged with the responsibility of doing.
2: Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud. I did talk to Mike Gordon this morning. He's the General Manager of Rural Export and Trading WA, or RETWA as it's known, the company exporting this shipment of sheep. He said he was only informed about the situation yesterday and really what happens from now is out of his hands, out of his control, and with the relevant state and federal authorities. He said at this stage the priority is the health of the staff, because the 56,000 sheep are being well looked after at that feedlot at Beldivis. Also, the RSPCA says it's going to be closely monitoring the welfare of the sheep. It wants the sheep to be cared for in this feedlot, while alternative local markets are found through Western Australian abattoirs. The RSPCA says under no circumstances should exemptions from regulations prohibiting the export of sheep between the 1st of June and the 14th of September be granted to accommodate this consignment. And this would subject the sheep to unacceptable levels of heat stress and death due to extreme heat and humidity in Middle Eastern waters at this time of year. That's a statement from the RSPCA. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? Most welcome on the text 0448 922 604. And I guess... Another point to consider in all of this is what if the ship is thoroughly cleaned, uh, loaded with the sheep and given the green light at this end and then the market at the other end puts up a red flag, rejects the shipment. That is certainly not a situation anyone wants to see develop. Your thoughts on text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four? Still to come on the Country Hour, very shortly, uh, taking a look at a mine just south of Kununurra where it's had a, already been one attempt to get it up and running this year, but the mining company KMG is hoping that a second attempt this year is finally going to get this iron ore project up and running. The ABC's Courtney Fowler has been looking at this story and she will be with you shortly to give you the details. Uh, also off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market and Tracy Kilner along with the details there. And just earlier in the hour, talking about Wide Open Agriculture's plan to um, investigate more about lupins and possibly processing them and marketing them for the rapidly growing plant protein industry. And it's working in with Curtin University to progress trials on protein extraction technology. And it's um, looking at making, well, you know, a few different things. An oat milk, for one, was discussed. And that got you quick onto the text. Uh, Owen at Bruce Rock says, "'Milk comes from animals, not plants. Soy or coconut milk is not milk. It's just juice thickened with various additives.'" And this too, disappointed that a wide open ag is calling extracted juice from lupins milk, when we all know milk is from lactating mammals. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to be part of the conversation. Uh, taking a look at the weather around Western Australia very shortly. Going through the rainfall figures in the last twenty four hours to nine o'clock this morning too. But first to the newsroom, and Jonathan Beale has the latest.
1: Hello, Belinda. The Federal Attorney-General says Commonwealth authorities acted correctly in informing WA's Health Department of sickness on board a live export vessel. Six crew members on the Al-Q8, which arrived in Fremantle last Friday, have tested positive for coronavirus. The WA government initially accused federal authorities of keeping the state in the dark, but has since backed down on that claim. Christian Porter says federal authorities followed protocol. The Australian Federal Police have announced they won't press charges against News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst. Police raided Smethurst's home in Canberra last year, sparking a national debate about media freedom. Earlier this year, the High Court found the warrant executed at her home was unlawful on technical grounds. And the WAFL has announced further details of its reduced competition for 2020, which is due to commence on the first weekend of August. In terms agreed to by the WA Football Commission, every team will play each other once over nine rounds followed by a top four final series quarters will be reduced to 16 minutes plus time on player payments have been cut by half more news coming up belinda at one o'clock
2: jonathan thank you for the update half past 12
1: the w a country hour with belinda on abc radio w a
2: This just in on the live export vessel at the centre of the latest COVID-19 outbreak here in Western Australia. Uh, This story about crew members on a livestock vessel having COVID-19 belies common sense. Why should it affect the shipment? Look after the crew that are sick and get some replacement crew in. Unbelievable how this has even become a story. And this through two, just talking about the weather. Where does it drop down a little bit? Can you ask the bomb if Wellstead is in for much rain on Friday? It seems they keep scaling it back as it gets closer. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now, and perhaps Steph Bond can fill you in a little more detail. Uh, Steph, what's going to happen uh, in the next few days and lead up to that uh, next front coming through for the Southwest Land Division?
10: Yeah, so we've had uh, some in the north and east, we'll start with, uh, a cloud band through the Kimberley. And yesterday to 9am this morning, we had uh, quite good rain through the coastal areas in the central parts, around 40 to 60 millimetres through there. Uh, today, we do have some lingering uh, thunderstorms right near the uh, coastal area, uh, particularly near uh Curry Bay and uh, down to Derby, uh, and we may get another kind of forty millimetres out of those storms. And otherwise, just some patchy rain through the remainder of the Kimberley. Uh, in the southeast, we're just looking at some cloud today. So from tomorrow, that uh, rain band still lingers in the Kimberley. Uh, with some thunderstorms near the northwest coastal area between Cape Leveque and Currie Bay once again could get another 40 to 50 millimetres uh, particularly if you're under those thunderstorms and if you're in the rain area maybe 5 to 10 millimetres Uh, the remainder of the Gascoyne, Pilbara and southeastern parts of the state uh, remain quite clear for Thursday by Friday that rain band in the Kimberley starts to contract a little westwards away from uh, the coast we may see a shower storm over the dampier peninsula but otherwise some light showers through the southwestern parts of the Kimberley. Uh, And we may see a late shower develop in the southeastern parts of the south interior, but otherwise remaining clear uh, across the north and east on Friday. Uh, We'll also see temperatures warming slightly by Friday through most of those parts. On Saturday, uh, we do get a week uh, cloud and shower feature develop through the eastern parts of the Pilbara and through the interior. Uh, we're not looking at much rainfall at, that's, at this stage on Saturday for that area, uh, mainly, mainly just up to one to two millimetres. Uh, and for the Euclid district in the southeast, we may see some showers develop later in the day and a coastal thunderstorm as the front moves through. Uh, through the gold fields in the morning, we could see some light showers in the far southwestern parts. Uh, and by Sunday, all those uh, showers and storms have contracted away from northern and eastern parts. Uh, but once that cold front moves through on the kind of Saturday, uh, we're looking at a return to cooler temperatures by Sunday. Uh, for the southwest land division, we're uh, seeing just some light showers across most of the southwest land division today uh, with some showers very similar tomorrow. We could see a some heavier showers over the lower, West and the southwest coastal districts, um, where we could see around five to ten millimetres through those areas. Uh, we will see a cold front just slip to the southwest of the far southwest parts of the state um, on Ch- the Tuesday, and we may see a late thunderstorm develop around the southwest capes uh, later in the day. Through the central wheat belt and great southern areas, we may see some showers tomorrow, uh, but once similar to today not a lot of rainfall associated with those uh, but the main feature is that cold front moving through during Friday. So we'll start to see those uh, heavier showers uh, develop across the west and southwest parts uh, overnight kind of Friday, Thursday night into early Friday morning and that uh, feature moves eastwards uh, during Friday. Uh, we'll see showers develop southwest of a line from around Shark Bay down to Israelite Bay during the day. We could see some thunderstorms southwest of a line from about Lancelin down to Hopeton and across to Esperance. Uh, and we'll also see some late hail develop southwest of a line from about Bunbury to Albany. Um, at this stage, we're looking at a pretty decent rainfall uh, for most of the parts southwest of a line from around Lanceland to Esperance at this stage where we could see upwards of around uh, 10 to 15 millimetres for inland parts and if you're near the coast we could see up around 20 to 30 millimetres and along the Scarp even up to 40 millimetres. Uh, for parts kind of further inland uh, through the Central wheat belt and the South East Coastal District. We're looking at possibly around two to seven millimetres uh, with this cold front. From early Saturday morning, we'll see the showers contract back to the west coast, south of Lancelin and along the south coast. And we'll probably see another couple of millimetres with those showers in those areas. And by Sunday, uh, most showers are confined to the west coastal areas and the south coastal areas as well, where we could see another two to five millimetres. All right. Lucky for those
2: in the line of some of those uh, showers, that rain that's on the way. Any um, warnings this afternoon, Steph? Uh,
10: No, we just have our coastal wind warning for the south coastal areas between the southwest capes and uh, Israelite Bay today great. Thank you for the wrap. Appreciate that. Steph Bond with the details today. And it's
2: 24 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now with the rainfall readings.
11: Yeah, not as many to get through as we've had in the last couple of days but in the north, in the Kimberley, Billaluna 19 mils, Campbellin 64, Curtin Airport 59, Signet Bay 49, Debisa 64, Derby Airport 60, Derby Bain Roads had 50, Fitzroy Crossing 48, Fossil Downs the same, Go Go St- Station 64, Jubilee Downs 59, Kimbolton 34, Leopold Downs 31, Liveringa Station 72, Lombardina Airport 41, Margaret River Airstrip 49, Mullabullla Airstrip 5, Mount Amherst 5 as well. Mount Barnett nine, Mount House airstrip sixteen, Mount Krause forty-seven, Mount Winifred twenty, Napier Downs thirty-two, Old Mornington Homestead five, Udiella thirty-one, and Yampi Sound had forty-two. And then in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, not many to get through at all. The Central West only a bit of rain out on the Brolis Islands. North Island recorded nine mils. and then in the Lower West and West, lots of locations received one to four mils, but none above that. In the Southern Coastal Region, Esperance Airport had seven, Oakmarsh Farm five, Pleasant Valley had uh, Oakmarsh Farm had six. Sorry, Pleasant Valley had five, and there was no rain recorded in the Central Wheat Belt or in the. Great Southern region, the uh, the highest region was quail up with four in the Great Southern region. And that's it.
2: Richard, thank you for going through the rainfall readings. It is 22 to 1.
11: On ABC Radio WA, you're with Belinda
1: Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour.
2: A couple of texts on the livestock vessel at the centre of the latest COVID-19 outbreak. They need to allow this ship to be loaded after crew are safe to travel. The RSPCA should stay out of it. Saying to find a local abattoir is not helpful, as I'm sure there's loads of sheep on farms that will need to be offloaded due to water issues. Restricting our market doesn't help anyone. Rod at Q-Town, and a shout out to my new workman on the tractor, Whitey. And Trev says, where were the RSPCA when thousands of cattle starved to death on government-run cattle stations only a couple of years ago? Who do they lay cruelty charges against? Yet again, the spineless RSPCA are just becoming another radically run group. A few days late for the ship won't make too much difference. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Shortly off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market today, taking a closer look at the iron ore price and where it might go, and also Rio Tinto. Blasting and uh, affecting some of those cultural sites here in Western Australia. First, to the East Kimberley, where mining company KMG is hoping its second attempt this year to get its iron ore project up and running will be a success. Reopening the mine is complicated because the previous operator of the mine, Gold Valley Iron, went into administration in February, less than six months after it started mining at the site. So now we've got a situation where it's possible the mine could resume operations months before the liquidator has finished investigating the millions of dollars of debt left behind by the previous operator. The ABC's Courtney Fowler is based in Kununurra. Courtney, who is behind this latest attempt to get the mine south of Kununurra up and running again?
12: Well, Kimberley Metals Group, known as KMG, they're the mine owner of the tenement. So that's just south of Cunanara, the Ridges Iron Ore Mine. They started mining at Ridges back in 2011, but then they had to put the mine into care and maintenance when the price of iron ore took a dive back in 2015. But last year, as commodity prices started looking promising again, they actually signed an agreement with this Perth-based explorer Gold Valley Iron to restart and operate the mine, with that first shipment going out around October. But then the first attempt to reopen stalled only a few months after that, when administrators were appointed to Gold Valley Iron in February, and then operations at the mine were paused soon after. Only weeks later, the operator Gold Valley was put into liquidation to try and pass Pay back some of that money owed to contractors and small businesses who worked on the project. As you mentioned, it's estimated there could be around 15 million dollars of debt racked up in total. So now the tenement holders, KMG, are trying to get that mine up and running again. Nothing's finalised yet, but they have been in talks with another mining contractor called Indus Mining to potentially manage a project in a joint venture type structure, which they hope will get Ridges back on track in the near future.
2: Courtney, what went wrong for Gold Valley in the first place and why were the administrators called in earlier this year?
12: Well, I got hold of the liquidators' report sent to creditors by Corte a couple of weeks ago, which identified... Quite a few issues when it started looking at Gold Valley's books, including a lack of working capital and liquidity. They also mentioned there were ongoing cash flow problems. The report went on to say there were some operational issues and the project shipped significantly less ore out to China than was initially expected and forecast. But ultimately, it was a dispute over a terminated contract with a minerals processing company. They're called Elmore Limited. That was the straw that sort of broke the camel's back and saw the first lot of administrators called in. But at the end of the day, it just appears the company wasn't making enough money to keep up with operating costs and payments to all its contractors and to continue on with its mining lease. Liquidators do say in that report I mentioned earlier that the company may have become insolvent back in November last year, but they have stressed they wouldn't be able to finish those investigations and conclude that until they get full access
2: to Gold Valley's books. Does Gold Valley agree with the conclusions made in the Liquidators report? Well,
12: Gold Valley say they only got an additional request for records right before that report was released a couple of weeks ago. They say they're in the process of sending more information to liquidators, which they, they say they believe will clear a few things up. The former director of Gold Valley Iron is Singaporean mineral trader Eugene Zi who's based in Perth. He's also the chairman of the Gold Valley Group that has interests in mining, energy and ag right across Australia. He did decline a radio interview request, but he did speak with me on the phone and agreed to respond to some of my questions about this project via email. He, In that um, statement, he put the project's operational and financial difficulties down to a number of things. He said there were failures by subcontractors, mechanical breakdowns, um, some adverse weather conditions as well. He also mentioned fluctuations in the iron ore prices and exchange rates played a part Um, But he seemed to believe that the project was on track to ramp up operations and felt the company would have ultimately succeeded if administrators hadn't been called in. But here's where it gets interesting, Bell. Before Gold Valley Iron went into liquidation, Yu Zhengzi registered a new company, Ridges Iron Ore Proprietary Limited. Now, in the statement he sent to me, he confirmed this new company is also involved in these talks with the owner of the Ridges Mine Tenement and another mining contractor about a potential restart of the mine. So how this new company, Ridges Iron Ore, would be involved in this potential restart isn't clear. But I was surprised that a new entity could be formed so quickly after this has all happened. When I asked liquidators at Quartermentha about this, he explained the way that the law works. Basically, debts are attached to companies, not individuals.
2: So this new company has no legal obligations to honour debts from Gold Valley. All right, so how likely is it that the mine will actually reopen while the liquidators are still investigating the debt left behind by the mine's previous operator?
12: Possibly, as as long as all these agreements are signed off on, as soon as July bell, which isn't that far away... As I mentioned, the owner of the tenement, that's KMG, they've been in talks with Indus Mining for some weeks now to potentially manage that, that manage that project in a joint venture. No one seemed to want to speak to me about how Yuzhang Yuzheng Z's new company, Regis Iron Oil, may fit into that arrangement. But what I did get told by Indus's new managing director, Ben Van Roon is that Indus would be responsible for managing the mine, but he did say they'd be contracting subcontracting parts mm. of that operation out. He hopes an agreement will be signed with KMG in the coming weeks and that a restart will be, he, he says a restart will be a good opportunity for local businesses in the Kununurra and Wyndham
2: communities. And how have the local businesses and the local community reacted to all this?
12: Well, the promise of a new start for riches could provide an economic boost for businesses in the East Kimberley. So so that has been acknowledged, but there has also been hesitations from those previously stung by Gold Valley Irons collapse. One former contractor contacted me when uh, he saw job ads start appearing earlier in the month. They started popping up on Facebook and a number of job, abs- um, job websites. He said it was distressing to see these jobs being advertised for a restart of the mine when so many people were still out of pocket. He didn't want to be identified, but did say he didn't expect to recoup his losses, which have already forced him to lay off an employee at his business. Uh, I've been contacted by a few other local businesses in town over the last few months while this has all been unfolding. Um, They've complained they were never actually paid for their work out at the mine. Um, So I asked liquidators about this and there's no guarantee at the end of all of this process that everyone will even get back everything that's owed. I was told once the investigation into Gold Valley's books was complete, the next step's could likely be some form of litigation in the courts. So it really seems like there could be a while to go for a resolution to this spell, potentially almost another year before local businesses and contractors involved find out if they can recoup their losses. But... I suppose in the meantime, all eyes will be on how this potential restart unfolds. It has been a rocky few years for ridges, as you've heard, so going in and out of care and maintenance over the last five years, but perhaps the third time's the charm for this project, Belle.
2: Courtney, thank you for going through the details. Courtney Fowler is the rural reporter based in Kununurra. You can read through the story in detail on the ABC Rural website. This is the Country Hour, 13 to 1. Well, mining giant Rio Tinto has admitted that over the weekend it destroyed a culturally significant site in WA's Pilbara region. It's believed to be about 46,000 years old. Rio was conducting the blasting at Dukin Gorge near Tom Price as part of its Sprockman 4 project. The company says it had permission to blast from a Section 18 exemption to the Aboriginal Heritage Act granted by the state government seven years ago. Michelle Stanley has just been talking to an emotional, Birchall Hayes, who is a Putu Kunti Guruma traditional owner, and she started by asking how this could have happened.
13: Okay, so for us, we, we did hear from our uh, our corporation office that there was some activities happening in in that particular area. To what extent, we didn't know until um, we saw uh, photos of um, the drill patterns, as well as the drilling pads, and also, uh, I suppose, the clearing of the area so they could get machines in there. Um, little did we know that that area where they had drilled blast and, and loaded the explosives was about 11 metres away from, from both these shelters.
0: We've had confirmation from Rio Tinto that those shelters were destroyed in the blast over the weekend. How does that make you feel?
13: It, it saddens us that something that we've got a deep connection to has, has been destroyed. It's, it's terrible, you know, and the Guruma people and the Binyuruh people, yeah, just can't understand the, uh, and, and the, the sorrow and, and sadness that we're, we're feeling now because of that.
0: What's the significance of that site?
13: That's where our, our ancestors were occupying their traditional land and from generation to generation, stories have been passed down to us around that occupation. And even going through and do ex- excavations in those areas um, to find the plaited hair and the artifacts and how they've been dated back to over 46,000 years, it's something that we, we will always remember. And traditionally we hand that down to the next generation, but in this this case, we won't have anything to show the next generation and to tell them stories about what had happened there and what's been passed down from from our ancestors.
0: So then what does that mean for you and your culture and your people then for the next generations?
13: We can't undo what's what's already happened, but what we can do is is try and go back to Rio Tinto and and talk to them on how we can protect the remaining sites in that area, the gorge, the the, the rock pool, the neashed-in area. And I know that, that Rio wants to make this work and wants to build a better relationship with with the Guruma people and the Benigurr people and, and and that's what we'd be aiming for.
0: Riyotindu had been given a Section 18 notice which allows them to clear that site seven years ago but it was obviously after that notice was given to allow the clearing that um, you discovered the significance of that site. Yep. What's your take on the way that process Works
13: okay. Um, look, we're working in a in, in a Heritage Act, which is about 50 years old, and once uh, uh, Section 18 is is granted, then it makes it hard for the traditional owners to unwind that, even on the back of new information around the dating of the artifacts, the hair, and that particular rock shelter as well. So it, it's not something that that you know, I suppose we're we're happy with that there's no avenue in the current heritage act for us to to step back and unwind the section eighteen.
0: The state government has said that it is planning to get rid of that part of the act, and they are hoping to come out with a new draft legislation this year. What would you like to see in that legislation to make sure? that this can't happen to any of your other sites or or any other um, native title holders in in Australia?
13: Yeah, look, I think um, all native title claimant groups would welcome the new uh, Heritage Act. Um, And and if the Section 18 is removed from that, then certainly that's going to be... um, It's going to balance that, that playing field between the mining proponent and also... The traditional owners, um, so we'd certainly welcome that. I understand that it it, it is a long process around uh, consulting with community and stakeholders to to um, you know ensure that the Heritage Act, as it's rolled out, is is certainly uh, informed and it, it informs the community as well. But um, certainly for us, it, it, it's not going to help us what, what's happened now.
0: What would you have liked to have seen Rio Tinto do? The Section 18 was granted seven years ago. It's a very long time. So what would you like to have seen Rio Tinto do before this, uh, the detonators were put down that, in that area and the blast occurred?
13: For us, we've, we, we've got an agreement with, with Rio Tinto. And part of that agreement is that we've got a local implementation committee and that's where the engagement happens uh, around mine planning and mine development. Um, yeah, and, and we've recently spoken to and, and met with Rio Tinto around how can we do that better um, and, and the communication that's passed around the table at those the, those forums. It needs to certainly be, um, I suppose, presented in a manner that's that's... Clearly and easily understood by traditional owners in terms of where the mining footprint is going to extend to, um, and I think that's that's what's what what could be missing in that process but um, you know it 's about raising that with Rio Tinto and ensuring that that if we 're not happy with with any piece of the mine footprint and where that 's heading, then we should have. The, the right to be able to speak up and, and uh, you know, negotiate a, a different path around um, where our significant sites are but also um, putting in place um, exclusion zones, barriers, buffer zones to protect these, these sites. All I want to say is that our experience, it's, it's something that we've learnt from and we didn't believe that we'd ever ever be in this position. Um, so I'd encourage other traditional owners to to ensure that, you know, their mining proponents, whoever's doing any mining activity on their country, is that they understand what they're, what they're getting themselves into and do everything that they possibly can to protect their sacred sites.
2: Virtual Hayes, he's a Putu Kunti Guruma traditional owner And talking to Michelle Stanley about um, Rio Tinto admitting over the weekend that it destroyed a culturally significant site in WA's Pilbara region, thought to be around about 46,000 years old. Rio says the company has had a long-standing relationship with the traditional owners for more than three decades and it says it's been working together in relation to the Dukin area over the past 17 years and a formal native title agreement was signed in 2011. Rio says that in 2013, ministerial consent was granted to allow the company to conduct activity in the Brockman 4 mine that would impact the Dukin 1 and you can two rock shelters. Now, the company says as part of this process, it identified places of significance and funded an extensive salvage management program in 2014. Rio says uh, that involved collecting cultural materials from rock shelters. Aboriginal Affairs Minister Ben Wyatt says approval for these site works occurred in 2013, as you he just heard. He says prior to reading the Aboriginal Corporation's press release, he wasn't aware of their concerns about the blasting. Ben Wyatt says the McGowan government is progressing new cultural heritage legislation to better protect Aboriginal heritage in this state. He says it will focus on agreement making between traditional owners and proponents. Three minutes to one. ABC WA, this is the country hour. Market time. Our numbers were down significantly at today's sheep sale at Catanning. But that was okay for those who sold because demand was good and farmers were pretty happy with the prices. Only 9,257 sheep and lambs were yarded. That's down 6,500 on last week. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the details?
9: A very active market with all categories gaining on last week's sale. New mutton topped the sale with the heaviest making $211. Heavy merino weathers sold to a top of $192 and the best crossbred lambs returned $189 ahead. The lightweight crossbred lambs sold for $70 to $114. Air freight weights sold from $95 to $158 to processors and from $95 to $114 to feeder buyers. The light trade weight lambs made from $145 to $181, heavier tradies sold for $176 to $189 and the heavyweight lambs returned $180 to $189. Merino weather lambs sold for $56 to $110 for weights under 14 kilos carcass weight and from $125 to $176 for the heavier weight categories. Merino ewe lambs made from $37 to $160 to restockers and processors paid $121 a head. Heavy U mutton gained eleven dollars selling for two hundred to two hundred and eleven. Medium weight ewes sold from one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and ninety. The better boning ewes were again in demand selling from 128 to 140. Lightweight and store ewes sold for $80 to $101 a head. The heavy weathers were up selling from $174 to $192. Medium weight weathers made from $115 to $160. And the lightweight weathers and stores sold for $108 to one hundred. dollars and twenty-eight dollars a head. Rams sold processors from twenty dollars for old store rams to one hundred and thirty dollars for the heavy young lines. Ram lambs sold from one hundred and sixty to one hundred and seventy for heavyweights and from eighty-five to one hundred and forty-one dollars in a large range of lighter weights. This has been Tracy Kiona for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service.
2: Thank you, Tracy. This just in from Ron on the live export vessel. Wouldn't they be better off to quarantine the crew on the boat? Rather than a swanky hotel in Perth, just doesn't make sense putting the Australian public at risk who made that decision. I guess the idea is to get them out, clean the ship and hopefully get those sheep to market. Newstime, 1 o'clock. You've been listening
10: to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.